0: Welcome to today's episode of The Blueprint Podcast, where we throw out the old blueprint so we can become who we were always meant to be. I'm your host, Jason Smith. If you haven't already, make sure you click the subscribe button and share the podcast with your friends on social media and tag me in it at jbirdfit. Today I have a very special guest for you all the way from Canada. Her name is Bree Larson. She is a clinical counseling psychotherapist and certified trauma coach. She's passionately dedicated to helping her clients better their lives and heal from their past. Three, two, one. (laughs) I was just gonna say countdown. Like let's let's run. Brie, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. For those of you that don't know Brie, I originally found her on TikTok from one of her videos that she did on HALT. Hungry, Angry, Lonely, or Tired. Oh, yeah. It was such a good video. And so Bree just has a really fantastic way of delivering information that automatically connects with you as you're watching those videos. If you don't already follow her, make sure that you do that. Uh, Bree Larson on TikTok. Bree, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself?
1: Thank you for the introduction. Yeah, I'm Bree Larson. I am a clinical counseling psychotherapist and trauma coach. I've been in this realm You know, professionally since 2013, but I fell in love with psychology going through school in 2003, and I absolutely knew that this was going to be the path that I was going to follow. So here we are today. Yeah, I I I am absolutely in love with and fascinated by human potential. I want to know why people are all different and why we choose to do the things that we do. What motivates that? What hinders that? And how how we can hack the system, so to say. So,
0: and that is just such a wonderful question. Why do we do? The things that we do,
1: right? It's fascinating. Human so,
0: <laughs> what's what's a basic answer that you've come up with in terms of why do we do the things we do?
1: In short, we ch- we chase dopamine, and Which we makes avoid, sense. we avoid mm-hmm. difficulty. So, if it's perceived difficulty, we will avoid it. Unless you've trained yourself from a neuroscience perspective to to push through barriers like that, your inherent. Uh, system will try and avoid it at all costs.
0: Things like conflict. Exactly. How can we overcome that level of avoidance with difficulty? What, what's a couple things that we can do to overcome that?
1: So I mean, we we got to pull it back a little bit farther than that. Of why are we avoiding it in the first place? So typically, when you are avoiding something, it's either because You've had experience with it in the past and it has not gone well, or you haven't enjoyed it, or you have a perceived notion that it won't go your way. So if you have what's called learned helplessness, or you fall into victimhood, a lot of the time, so you are the victim of your circumstances, you are the victim of the results of something, you will avoid certain situations in order to not receive that consequence or result again and again and again. And so if you perceive something to be similar to something you've experienced in the past, that's the pattern that you will develop at the end of the day. We're all just beings who are conditioned to act certain ways. So we develop patterns of behaviors, patterns of thoughts, and uh, that drives the way that we act and feel and, and think that's what CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy is based on. So in order to overcome that avoidance, there's a number of different things that you can do. Like I said, CBT is, is one method where you actively engage in an activity and you direct your thoughts in a different direction than the way that they've gone in the past. And you also direct your behaviors into whatever it is that you're trying to overcome with like exposure therapy and try to mimic behaviors of other people who have been able to uh, to reach those goals like just using them as an example things like that.
0: And that's why it's so important to be cognizant and aware of the type of people that you're following on social media because you can actually use them as a guide to help you navigate some of these g- difficult times and experiences by, you know, looking at their success and their ability to do certain things. Again, depending on who you're following because there's a lot of people out there that are truly inspirational. They've actually done these things and they lay it out for you step by step of what it took for them to to become successful in a certain arena or to overcome a certain thought, feeling, or emotion. So it's really important what you're actually consuming on a regular basis. It's deeply impactful. Oh,
1: yeah. And I mean, To go deeper on that, the five people that you surround yourself with the most are the most influential people in your life. Regardless if you're following people on social media, if you're following some heavy hitters in the personal development realm or in some sort of business endeavor that you're trying to accomplish or whatnot, if you're hanging out with people that are not the greatest influences, they don't have drive, they don't have ambition, they're not making smart choices, even if just they're making underhanded comments throughout the day, those things will subconsciously shape the way that you think and act. Like if you're around someone giving you know, backhanded comments to people or cutting people down or they're making these snide remarks about other people or even about you, that cuts you down and subconsciously that will imprint on you. And so you'll either rationalize it to be something that's okay and it's something that you should expect and therefore go into your next relationships, accepting less than behaviors and less than treatment because you've normalized it. You rationalize that that's something that's acceptable when sometimes it's not. Sometimes it then tips into the condescension, manipulation, um, some really dark categories. But because you've experienced it on a regular basis and you've been conditioned to just accept it because you, it's someone who's in your life that you... Uh, love or appreciate or you know you need them in some capacity
0: or they've just always been there and you you fear that rejection but the one thing you have to remember is that no one who's doing anything positive with their lives is ever going to punch down they're never going to put you down they're going to reach down and help lift you up
1: yeah those are called balcony people they'll help you up to their balcony get away from those basement
0: that's nice balcony people I'll have to, I'm writing that one down.
1: Enjoy the balcony with me. It's beautiful up here.
0: What is complex trauma, and how does it differ from other types of trauma?
1: So trauma is a a lived experience of a traumatic event. So when trauma imprints on you, it's very subjective, meaning that something that is traumatic to me may not be traumatic to you at all, even slightly. Someone could experience a car accident. They're involved in a car accident where. Um, it was a serious enough accident that, you know, they may, may have received a few injuries or whatnot. Two people can experience the same incident and one person will then go forward in their life. Absolutely fine. Unscathed. Like, yeah, that sucked. I, we, we got hurt. It was scary, but I'm, I'm okay going forward and I, I don't have any issues stemming from it in the, the mental health cognitive type of realm. Whereas the other person might go forward and now have a phobia of, um, Cars driving, being in traffic, walking alongside roads, they might develop an exaggerated startle reflex where, if they hear a loud noise, they they kind of jump and whatnot. You know, the, the traumatic experience is subjective to the person who's experiencing it. So that's what trauma is. Complex trauma is repeated exposure to a traumatic experience over a period of time. And so, someone who is in a complex trauma environment you know examples of that are like domestic violence being a child of a narcissistic parent you know anything that's a repeated exposure to something that is unhealthy and is a a traumatic experience for someone so when you grow up in an environment let's say with trauma much to what we were talking about earlier you tend to normalize unhealthy events and so there could be you know the way that that someone is being treated such as having a narcissistic parent, there's going to be manipulation, there's going to be control, there's going to be, you know, all of the classic narcissistic traits coming from a parent directed towards a child. And someone who's experiencing that on a regular basis is going to develop maladaptive views of the world and maladaptive coping mechanisms. When you're in complex trauma, it really does condition you to act and think in a way that is gives you a predisposition to, uh, number one, need to probably see a therapist later in life um, and shape your perspectives in a way that is actually gonna get you closer to what you want in life as opposed to the way that you inherently already think and perceive things because your perception will just, it will just be skewed. It's based on a model of conditioning that is, it's just not healthy and congruent with what reality actually is.
0: What's an example of a maladaptive view? What would that look like?
1: Say so you go to a restaurant and you're with your partner. If you grew up in, a, in an environment with, and I'm just going to use the narcissistic parent as, as an example because it's um, it's relevant here. You go to a restaurant with your partner and your partner is, is uh, ordering food or whatnot. And the food comes to the table and there's like something slightly off with the the meal, but it's not really a big deal, that partner might then berate the the serving staff, might ask to talk to the manager and start yelling at the manager. And you, because you've lived in an environment where that has been normalized and that is something that you're used to, you don't see that as being inappropriate or you don't see that as being wrong in any way. Whereas anybody else in the restaurant who didn't grow up in an environment that fostered that type of perception would look over and be taken back and think that's really inappropriate to be speaking to someone in public that way and about a topic that's not that big of a deal, things like that. So your perception of the event taking place and of the behaviors of other people becomes normalized to be something that is okay and expected and nothing to to really get upset over and to tolerate. Whereas Someone who didn't experience that would have a very different perception of that event.
0: What would a maladaptive coping mechanism look like?
1: Again, with the narcissistic thread, when you are a child growing up in a narcissistic home or in a a complex trauma environment, you tend to go a couple of different ways. You are predisposed to either develop into that character as well, or you go the other direction. So one of those is called hyperactivation. So you end up developing into someone who gets stuck in fight, flight, freeze, or you develop into someone who is in hypo activation, which is you tend to go more the shutdown type of, of way. So you'll be perceived as someone who is weak or you don't have a backbone or you can't stand up for yourself or you're a people pleaser, those types of, of things. So you could either develop into that same character as uh, say your narcissistic parent or um, someone who is delivering that, that complex trauma experience to you, or you develop into someone who, Um, is a doormat and just learns to take abuse and, and the detriments of it without doing anything about it because you've, you've learned that you are helpless. You've learned that you have no recourse. That anything that you've tried in the past has failed for whatever reason, because you uh, don't have the wherewithal to feel like you deserve better, that you're worth better, that you have inherent value, regardless of your productive tendencies. Or you've learned that the tactics that you're using just fail because this person is bigger, stronger, better than you in, in some capacity. When in reality, they're not. They are coercive. They are controlling. They are abrupt and abrasive and abusive. But your or tactics fail against them, and you internalize that.
0: Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just it's a lot, especially when you put it in a child's perspective. They have a parent that is struggling with an alcohol addiction, mm-hmm. but that addiction stemmed from having served in the military and had you know a, a, an injury that's now going to be lifelong and difficult to manage, and so there's. So much going on in this one little scenario, and it causes that particular parent to become angry or abusive or someone who's going to then create trauma for that child that then grows up having these experiences. And when they hit the point of becoming an adult on their own, they have enough wherewithal to make the decision that I'm not going to be like that. But then they go on the complete opposite end of that spectrum to be... Everything that that parent wasn't to their child. And now, with that, adds in all this other expectation on the child that they have is, you know, being that people pleaser, showing up, being perfect, getting great grades to have that model life their parent wasn't able to have due to the experiences that they had. That third child now grows up with this expectation of, well, I don't want to be like that. And it just seems to be like this cycle that
1: mm-hmm. so many,
0: so many people struggle to get away from um, because it's being passed down from one generation to the next generation. And it looks different in each generation. It doesn't necessarily have to look the same. And every it now and then- in-
1: the same. It can't. They're growing up in a society that wasn't formed while they were being parented. So whatever whatever you're trying to shape your child for, the, I want them to be better than me and I want them to have what I didn't. You're trying to prepare them for the reality that you grew up in. People aren't really understanding is that the society that they will then inherit when they are um the age of majority is vastly different from what we grew up in. so there's actually there's actually no way that you can properly uh, outfit a child with what they need to be successful they they need to grow into their own experiencing the world as they as they grow up in it there's really no way that you can save your child from having some of these nuances of you know failed parenting experiences because the, there's no way that you can predict what it is that they're right. going to need. I
0: think that's what important have- to recognize is you, you're never going to be the perfect parent. So let
1: go of that notion. And as long right. as you are focused on or worried about in a healthy way, worrying to a healthy degree, <laughs> yes, <laughs> worried about um, whether or not you're doing the right things or that you're, you're focusing on doing what's right for your child, chances are you are because you're putting the time and effort and attention into it that it deserves. But to your point, you are never going to be the perfect parent. There's always going to be something that your child wants and needs and maybe isn't able to vocalize during that time that you might be missing. So as long as you're trying your best and you're focusing on compassion and love and and nurturing, I mean, obviously, discipline and structure go along with that. But if you're in a situation where you're trying to weigh the two blanket statement, choose love and nurturing. If you're in a, a situation where you're having a struggle between do I add in the structure and the discipline or do I Choose to give my my child the the compassion and the love that I feel like I want to give them at this point. Choose compassion and love. You will never go wrong with that. The structure and discipline will come in organic forms. Anyway, society will give that to them. Society will keep them accountable and the people around them will give them that. What society and the people around them do not inherently give them is that love and nurturing that they need. So choose that one. And
0: I agree with that. You, you can see it with this youngest generation, the statements that they make with the high level of hopelessness that they're experiencing at what seems to be from a generational standpoint is that it's being expressed on social media and in different areas. They're all saying that they just have this overwhelming sense of hopelessness. And a lot of that just comes from what they really need is that love of their parent. They need to be seen, heard, loved, and understood in that moment. Mm-hmm. How does complex trauma impact our habits and our decision-making process?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we, we touched on it briefly. Essentially, what happens is that over time, you learn what works for you. And so if you try one tactic and you're like, oh, that didn't work. I hit a wall with that. It didn't. I didn't get even close to the result that I want. You'll pivot, change direction and try a new tactic. And if that doesn't work, you'll again pivot and try a new tactic. And when you find something that works for you, this isn't a a, a conscious process. Sometimes it is where if a child or someone um, really wants something, you will try and problem solve to figure a way through it to get the result that you're looking for. But sometimes it's a, it's an an unconscious process where, you know, you'll, you'll try something and it doesn't work. And you'll, you'll be upset about it for a little while. And you'll kind of, you know, sit there and be upset and I don't know, mope around about it or whatnot. And then you might not think about it for a little while. And then organically you're presented with a new opportunity. And because you've already learned that the way that you tried to attack that problem, the first time didn't work for you, you will try a new tactic the next time that's called conditioning. And so over time, you are conditioned to do basically everything in your life. And that's from waking up in the morning, brushing your teeth, getting ready. The way that you get ready typically is a habitual pattern. You probably get out of bed, may or may not do the same general routine in the same steps or the same orders every single day. And so the way that you form patterns and habits is by adding in small conscious changes over time that add up to long-term consistent change down the road. And in doing so, what you're doing is actually growing new neural pathways in your brain. And that's the same if you're trying to add in a physical habit of say, you know, going to the gym. So you want to get up in the morning and start going to the gym. You're not just all of a sudden going to say, okay, I'm going to get up at 6am five days a week and start going to my gym for an hour, five days a week. If you try and do that, you will likely hit a wall at some point. There might be this instant motivation of, yeah, I'm going to get these benefits and I'm going to go through this change and, and it's something that I want. I want the results of this. But over time, that motivation is going to die off and it's going to it's going to come to a an effort of willpower that a lot of people just don't have a tank of willpower to draw on and they will fall off. bandwagon let's say the healthy way to do that and the most effective way to do that is to add small incremental changes over time that add up to a large change down the road and so i would say start by just trying to wake up at six and have your coffee don't push yourself to do a lot more than that if you can do that for five days in a row then next week, you know, put on your gym clothes and maybe drive to the gym. If you're there, maybe go in for five minutes. You don't have to be there for long. Don't push yourself to do an hour when you haven't been to the gym and however long go in for five minutes, you know, walk on the treadmill and then go home. If you can do that for five days in a row, then from there you add in like stay for half an hour, slowly ramp up to the goal that you want it that you want to have. You don't just all of a sudden walk into the gym after, you know, not being there for however long or never having gone and think, well, I'm going to lift 200 pounds. No, you, you ramp up to it. You start with five pounds then you move up to 10 and then 15 yes. and then 20 you ramp it up you don't just go pardon my French balls to the wall and lift 200 pounds <laughs> it just doesn't work that way so why would habit formation work any different There's you're no Canadian You're live.
0: Canadian. do you speak French
1: we, have, we all have to learn French up until <laughs> yeah, well, we call it grade 10 I took it till till grade 12 but I did go to Montreal once and uh, I tried to speak French and I was uh-huh. to just use English so I'm gonna say no
0: <laughs> I love it <laughs> That's awesome. And I love what you're saying about ramping things up. It's all about stacking the habit, taking it slow, building consistency, and these things take time and you have to give yourself grace in that process, especially when we talk about fitness and maybe you haven't done it before, or it's been 15, 20 years and you're looking to build that new habit. And it's exactly what you said. You just, you go to the gym, maybe sit in the parking lot, show up for 10 minutes, sit in the parking lot, get used to it, see people walking in and out, and then just start slowly going in, touch the weights, have an experience you know inside of the gym itself and you know you're literally just wiring your brain in this new environment of what it feels like what it smells like what it sounds like how it feels spatially for me to be in this place and then just building up that confidence to then finally start Moving along, pick a piece of equipment and start figuring things out as you go and maybe ask questions and build relationships and talk to people. And most people inside the gym, I know a lot of times we see all these videos of influencers getting mad because people ruin their shot. But for the most part, we're all there for the same reason of just trying to work out and get a little bit healthy. They're going to help you. Nobody's going to tell you, get out of here unless they've got a camera. Maybe that could happen. Yeah. But
1: And so that's how you form habits if you're on the best... You have the best level playing field to do so. If you've got complex trauma, someone who is coming in as like a neurotypical and isn't um, isn't affected by trauma has a better capacity and better chance to then form a habit. They, they've, got, they've got no nuances that are affecting that whatsoever. Someone with complex trauma is coming in on a different playing field. They're coming in at a deficit where they've got to then handle the thoughts and the, um, the conditioning that has brought them down here to just bring them up to here to be able to start forming new habits. And so if you've got learned helplessness and um, you know, you've know, you got people pleasing tendencies and that sort of thing, you've got to handle those before you can come up to uh, learning a new habit in the first place, because you don't believe that you can even do it. So it really does put you in a detrimental uh, headspace and a detri- detrimental framework to be forming new healthy habits and new healthy just ways of being in general.
0: So therapy is the answer.
1: I'm a huge fan of therapy. <laughs> but I mean, if you, if you can't afford therapy, there's a lot of things out there that are fantastic resources. Like a $20 book can get you fairly far if you actually read it with intention. This is a fantastic book. I love
0: that you picked that one up. For oh, those good. of you for those of you that are on the audio portion of the podcast, it's Brianna Weiss' book, The Mountain Is You. If you haven't got that, go check it out. It's all about self-sabotage, something that we all tend to do so freely and maybe don't recognize some of the signs and signals of what that looks like in our life. So definitely go check that book out.
1: But that, you know what I'm saying is there's, there's free resources out there as well. You know, listening to podcasts, going on YouTube. TikTok is an amazing educational platform if you're With- there.
0: With discern, with discernment, I always have to put out that disclaimer for everybody that's out there. If you're watching a TikTok, you have the power within you to recognize when something doesn't resonate with you, when it's not for you, if the information maybe isn't all that great, turn away from that material that, that causes you. Um, to think otherwise and for sure
1: consider the source if you you know if you swipe over and you find that the rest of their videos are about them and their cat them doing risk-taking behaviors specifically that person is not someone to take advice from risk-taking behavior is a maladaptive coping mechanism and it's typically from someone who was in an environment that was chaotic or dramatic or stressful and that's what they thrive in now if you run towards fire instead of away from it you have trauma (laughs) Sorry, fireman.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, it's so funny because a lot of people will say, well, I thrive in a chaotic environment. It's where I do my best work. I get it. I hear you. I was that person. And then I started to recognize why I thrived in those types of areas. Mm-hmm. And now it's, I don't shy away from it but i just i recognize that when i think i'm in a flow state it's because i'm experiencing all this other stuff that's going on but so
1: i should backpedal a little bit it's not necessarily that you you have trauma period um people with adhd do the same thing because they thrive on the dopamine that comes from that experience and if you have adhd you are more likely to be the person who is the helper in an emergency situation holding the door open for other people who are evacuating a building while also complimenting their shoes because you have the wherewithal to notice other details and squirrel while still being effective in multitasking. So just a little caveat, it doesn't necessarily happen.
0: which sounds like more of a superpower than a detriment. So, it
1: is. That's yeah. what I call I call ADHD a superpower.
0: That attention to detail and being able to get those other elements in that whole entire scene is super beneficial. Because <laughs> you're you're seeing the world in a way that most people just don't. They don't it's have the ability to do it. That.
1: Exactly. Everybody. We could talk about that because narcissism is a spectrum, right? Like there's a healthy degree of it that, and you go through a developmental stage that you're supposed to learn it.
0: So then let's talk about the differences between narcissism and healthy narcissism, and the fact that not everybody that breaks up with you is a narcissist.
1: This kind of, this is one of my biggest pet peeves of the last little while. <laughs> the label of narcissist gets thrown around to an unhealthy degree. People with narcissistic personality disorder need to fit a qualifying criteria in order to have the disorder narcissism is a spectrum meaning there's a healthy degree of narcissism and then there's an unhealthy degree of narcissism. Typically people who are narcissistic, and this is what drives me nuts, is that people just label them as being unhealthy, selfish, self-centered type of people who do manipulative and controlling things to other people. But they got that way because of trauma, right? Like you, they experienced a childhood that there was absolute dismay. There was no nurturance. There was no expectation of a parent to be there for them. And they had to develop a personality that they could take care of themselves and they don't trust other people because of it. So they, my, again, my viewpoint is that every human deserves compassion and love. Love solves all. It really does. And it's not in a woo woo type of sense. It's in a, a nature versus nurture help with a healthy sprinkling of, of love to be able to foster whatever is organically going to grow from that person. But back to what we were talking about. <laughs> so <laughs> narcissism is a healthy component of someone's personality. And developmentally, there's a stage in adolescence that you are in that developmental stage, you start to grow a a healthy component of narcissism within your personality, your personality is not set until you're 25 years old. So between 18, or sorry, like 15 to 25 is when that's growing for you. And you're supposed to test the world and see what works for you and what doesn't again, conditioning. So if you're learning that you get more of what you need, which is a subjective issue with being more narcissistic, that is something that's going to stick for you. If the people around you are also narcissistic, again, the five people closest to you who are shaping your perceptions and your, uh, your traits and the way that you think and act, if they're giving you feedback that what you're doing is correct and it's narcissistic you are more likely to develop those traits so when there are people in your life that are just looking out for themselves and they're putting up healthy boundaries maybe in a way that's not the way that you would prefer that to be handed to you that's not necessarily narcissistic healthy boundaries of the way that they feel like being treated and the way that they are, are expecting somebody else to be involved in their life is not not narcissistic it's just a boundary if they're delivering it in a way that you don't appreciate, giving them that feedback, if they're able to self-reflect and see, okay, my boundary was correct, but my delivery of that boundary was what the issue was, was with how I did that. If they can self-reflect, have the empathy for what they did for you, to you, and then correct if they so choose to, that means that they are not a narcissist. Narcissists do not have the capacity to self-reflect and take concerted action on other people's feedback um, and have empathy for their actions towards other people, among other things, obviously. But if they are able to do so, if they're capable of doing so, they just have narcissistic tendencies and traits that they are playing into and choosing to uh, choosing to hang on to because they're working for them to some degree. But it doesn't mean that they have MPD.
0: So you can be high on the narcissistic spectrum, mm-hmm. but not necessarily be a narcissist.
1: Yes, exactly. You yeah. can also come off with... The issue also is that we've got all these like pocket psychologists out there. And yeah. what I mean by that is, you know, people on TikTok talking about um you know being a narcissist coach or um you know a relationship coach let's say that they don't they don't know enough about the nuances of different personality disorders or even um developmental disorders and whatnot like adhd autism ocd and narcissism have overlapping traits and so if you're adhd you are going to be impulsive And you are going to be chasing the dopamine activity, which can come off as you being selfish and self-centered and wanting this grandiose um, type of persona. But really, you're chasing the dopamine, right? You you might not even care about what other people think about you, but perception to other people is that you want to be the center of attention. You don't necessarily want the attention. You want the dopamine that comes with it. You can get that in a one-on-one conversation with someone, or you can get it by... In, in spades by being the center of attention of a group of people at a party. It doesn't mean that you're narcissistic. If, and especially if you're ADHD, those two get confused a lot.
0: That's so interesting. I get so many questions just about, and I I don't know why they ask me necessarily, because I talk a lot about attachment styles and I make it very clear I don't talk about narcissism. I'm not a therapist. It's not my area of expertise. It's not something that I really want to dive into because for me, attachment styles is just a way of take the label at first. That's fine. If you want to identify as anxious or avoidant, or disorganized attachment, that's fine for initial, like just trying to figure out you, who you are, where you're going, what you're doing, how relationships work. But eventually you want that label to drop off because the goal is that you're ultimately going to become more secure in your attachment style and by becoming more secure within yourself. And so we start building habits and doing things that are going to help us build up our self-esteem and the relationship that we have with ourselves so that we can find that path to looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves for who we truly are instead of through the lens of of attachment or all these other labels that we like to throw on things that maybe you don't necessarily have to wear for the rest of your life. Acknowledge that those certain behaviors exist within you and they can be brought up by certain situations, but then know that you can build the tools of resilience to then overcome that so that you're not constantly in that space. That's how I view it <laughs> from my perspective with attachment styles. But what I get a lot of is they end up in a breakup and they automatically go to, well, they were a narcissist because they exhibited these traits and this is how I was treated. At the same time, and this isn't victim blaming, so calm down, we all play a role in our relationships. And so I was hoping maybe you could expand expand on that idea for a little bit for us.
1: Ultimately, you are not in control of anyone other than yourself so focusing on what they did to you and why they did what they did to you and why they should have done something different according to what your game plan was and what your results should have been is just an exercise in frustration the only thing that you can be doing is focusing on what it was that they did and why you accepted it what was within you that said yep I'm going to stay with this person. Yeah, that, I, right. I can accept that.
0: that. That is where everybody goes into, well, now you're just victim blaming. And it's just like, I throw my hands up in the air at that point. You did
1: yourself as a victim then. Again, this is learned helplessness, victimhood. There are people out there, and I'm not trying to victim blame at all, because there are. I was in a narcissistic relationship previously as well. I, I know what that feels like. And it is very hard to see things for what they are while they're happening potentially
0: especially with your base knowledge and root knowledge of yeah. all of these concepts right I, yeah. I can only imagine what that must have been like
1: um, it, it, yeah exactly sometimes you're just too close and at that point i'm going to say lean on the third party uh, objective people who are giving you the feedback and if they're a trusted source if they're if there's people around you like a best friend or a family member or you know a close friend or something like that if they're telling you like this is not a good situation like what, what what's happening right now is not healthy Is not normal you know this person isn't treating you the way that um I would expect them to and that's someone who loves and cares about you and wants the best for you regardless believe them give them the benefit of the doubt because chances are you're someone who is thinking about it logically and you're like yeah I think that there's probably a piece there that I should probably grasp onto and, and listen and then you're thinking about it emotionally and that piece of you is like but I want the love and it feels good when it's good. But if there's this like love bombing and discard and um, ebb and flow of uh, the good times and the bad times, that's not normal. That's not typical. Someone who cannot emotionally regulate themselves enough to, um, to keep their emotions in check and make, proper grounded decisions on the future of your relationship is not someone who's in a healthy place to be having a relationship in the first place. They've got to, they've got to reel it back and figure out what's going on with them. If they refuse to do so, and they refuse to acknowledge that they've even got a problem, that should be your answer right there. Again, what are you willing to accept? What is the role that you are playing? What are you contributing to the relationship? You are not this like anomaly of the relationship where you are the center of it and everything else has to orbit around you and follow the plan that you have. You are a part of it. It's an equation. How do you make this equation equal the love that you want? You have to play a role in that.
0: When you're in a relationship with somebody who devalued. is devalued. Yeah. But so when you're in a relationship with a narcissist, what is the role of the amygdala in that experience? Because we talk a lot about the brain and trauma and the experiences that we're having. Can it make it more difficult for somebody to, you know, have that trusted source that's near them. We all have those family members that would step in or that great friend that you've had forever. But then you completely deny anything that that friend would say, even though you've been friends with them for the past 20, 30, 40 years. You just can't hear what they have to say about your partner in that situation because they're in that place of rejecting anything that that person has to say. Does the amygdala play a role in any of that?
1: So your amygdala is your alert center. It is the piece of your brain that is in charge of the fight flight response there's obviously a lot more complexity to it but in you know in layman's terms uh, it's it's the alarm center. It does not have rational thought to guide it as to whether or not it needs to activate or not. It just activates. You can think of it like if you're walking down an alley at night and you see a shadowy figure in front of you, your amygdala is going to say, alert, alert, be afraid, fight, flight, do something because that looks scary. And then as you get closer, you realize that it's actually, you know, a piece of something hanging on a wall that was just in the shape of a human. It doesn't have rational thought attached to it to be able to interpret whether or not that's a thing to be afraid of or not and so there are going to be times where if you are someone who is prone to activation which is the fight flight freeze response you will activate more often than what is actually necessary and that's when you have that is when you do need therapy where you need to come in and and go through some sort of trauma anxiety type of therapy to retrain your nervous system, because that's what's controlling the amygdala, to not react in situations that don't warrant a stress response. When we're talking about this in terms of narcissistic abuse and being in, in those dynamics of relationships, it gets really convoluted, because you're going to go one of two ways, you're either going to be the hyperactive person where your your nervous system is just completely dysregulated, and you don't know when to react, you don't know how much to react or to what degree to react. So you might be someone who is like explosive or um, over the top with your reactions. And that's not helpful, because then you're just a basket case that can't, you know, you can't get anything done, because you're always in activation, or you might go the other way, when uh, the narcissistic partner has conditioned you to and gaslit you to not believing the reality of what is and you second guess everything and so you just take no action because you have no idea what's what. That is the more typical response. A lot of people who are the partners of narcissistic partners tend to not really know what to do. They get confused. They take no action because they don't know what action is the one to do and which one isn't. Their intuition is is has the the devalue discard cycle because the narcissist has gaslit them, is trying to control them, is probably isolating them from other people because those people can have opinions on the behaviors that are happening and whether or not the non-narcissistic partner should be taking that type of, of um, treatment and whatnot, they will try and isolate them from people who can influence them like that. The narcissist wants to have total influence over that person. Yeah, your amygdala ends up just being confused and you you feel like you want to react, but then when you're... Your cortex gets involved and tries to interplay with um, the rational thought and the impulse control and whatnot. It, you just end up taking no action and th- you will get depressed because your it's, system- it's almost
0: like your logical brain just can't engage in that moment to, to give you that extra oomph that you might need to disengage from that environment. Well,
1: that's exactly what it is. A part of the, the stress response is the systematic shutdown of other pieces of your brain. Your cortex, your prefrontal cortex, which is your impulse control, your rational thought, your decision-making shuts down first. Your hypothalamus, which is your memory learning center, shuts down as well, so you won't encode memory. You won't be able to recall some of the things that have happened you know, a friend might be like, "Well, this person did X, Y, and Z. Don't you remember that?" No, no, I don't, because your brain was not online. That piece of your brain was not online for that.
0: Um, now, is there potential to get that memory back down the road as you go through therapy and different modalities and and do different things?
1: Potentially, but that's getting into a a, a much bigger topic. Some of it, yes. Like if it did encode the memory and it's just um, an issue with recall, then yes. If it didn't encode, then no. I feel like we didn't cover enough at all.
0: <laughs> oh, no. Th- this is this is plenty. This will give us probably a half hour of content. Three yeah, things.
1: I would love to do this again.
0: Absolutely. I love talking. Well, thank you for joining us. And we will do this again.
1: Well, cool, thanks for having me.